Well, I don't want you to raise your hand on this because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but how many of you had conflict with someone this past week? Now you say, well, why are you bringing it up this week? Well, I could bring it up any week. (laughs) And you kind of wonder, well, was that with a, must have been some really mean, ugly, unsaved person that came out of the woods and went, ah, and he had conflict. But it might mean that you had conflict with another Christian. How does that work? How can you who believe in God, believe this word, have faith in Jesus Christ, believe all the truth that we've been taught, and love the Lord, and you love one another, how is it that you, this last week, had conflict? Well, all of us experience that. And I think we experience that every week. And it makes life miserable, doesn't it? until you get it resolved, if you can get it resolved. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and this is really what we see the Apostle Paul writing to people he loves, he dearly loves, he cares about, he, he wants to see them grow in their faith, and he's admonishing them about the bigger picture of having joy that is constant in the Christian life. God has designed for you and desires for you to be full of joy. And one of the greatest disruptions to our joy is when we have conflict with other people. And it bothers us most when it's the people closest to us. So how do we work through that? It probably affected your week when you had conflict with someone else to where you're constantly being sidetracked in your mind to that. It's kind of a cloud that is over you. It causes you to struggle. In the first century, as Paul writes to this, he challenges them and gives a little more detail. The first five verses that Mike read really discuss this subject of having unity, having a oneness of spirit. And we know that going back to this joy-filled church and a joy-filled message, they still had personal conflict. Otherwise, he wouldn't talk about it. He talks about it the last four verses of chapter 1, and then we come into chapter 2. The first five verses talk about how there's a need for unity. And particularly in this church, uh, he's going to talk about it. And it had to do with two women. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 4, if you look in chapter 4, in verses 2 and 3, he says, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the one mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So apparently there are two women, the names are given, and there's a conflict, and Paul's concerned about the conflict between these two women because these women loved the Lord and they contended at his side at one time. Now, this conflict is really disruptive to the entire church. It's disruptive to the other believers around them. And you think about how could a, a good, strong church, because there are a lot of letters that Paul writes to churches with doctrinal problems and moral problems, and 
when he writes to the church in Philippi, those aren't there. It's not, they're not doctrinal issues. They're not moral issues. But we've got personal issues, attitude issues that come into play. And so he is pleading with them that they would deal with this and help get this resolved. So I think in even the strongest, the best of organizations and families and ministries, that we're still going to have to deal with these things because we have a, even though we're Christians and we believe all the truth of God, we say we do, we still struggle with what we call the agony of humanity. And there's nothing that will tear away at your heart more than having disunity. And what I have found that it's usually not doctrine, it's not, oh, we don't believe the same creed, or there is some moral failure. Those things can happen. But usually it's something within our attitudes, the way we respond to people, in our relationships and our personalities. And I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul deals with this. Uh, it's a timeless truth. And I've, I've shared this with you before. I love the writings of the Apostle Paul because he writes in a confessional way. He's a humble man. And he deals with issues that are, are relevant to the church. And he walks you through them. And that's what he's going to do with us today. So how do we strive for unity? That's really what we're going to focus on, striving for unity. Last week's message, we finished up chapter 1. And verse 27 actually tells us the, the very thing. Remember we started off, whatever happens. Last week's message was whatever. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is verse 27. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So if you want to underline or highlight that phrase, striving together as one. That's Paul's really, his plea. And verse 27, I think, really launches us in, as it kind of catapults us into chapter 2, to a fuller discussion and explanation of how that's really going to work. He said, I'm praying that you become of one mind, your one heart, you're striving together, and that you have unity. There are particular situations in this church, like Yodia and Syntyche, but you know what? It affects every single one of us. Not only in that church in Philippi, at Valley it affects us every, every week we live we have disruptions and tensions that take place in our relationships. So this is Paul's challenge in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, I'm not going to read through this. Uh, Mike read through the, the first five verses, so I'm not going to take time to read through these, but I want to highlight some of these thoughts. He talks about what is, what is important is for us to have a joy-filled church and for us to accomplish the mission that God has called us to, in other words, God has put us here on this earth to do something, we need to have unity. Without unity, you say, well, what's so important about unity? Why do we need to get along? Why do we need to have unity? Because when, when there's no unity, there is no joy, there is no peace, you are filled with stress and anxiety, and, and I know you're saying, you don't need to tell me that. <laughs> I know that. Um, I'd like to be able to say, you know, Diane and I have never had a crossword. We have never had a conflict. We have never had a tension in 32 years of marriage. 
I've heard people say that. I'm thinking, right. I mean, are you really married? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, but there is nothing that disrupts my day more than when there's tension between the two of us. If I know things are not right with her, or there's, there's stress or tension, it affects my entire day. If you've had children, and you've had crosswords with one of your kids, or they're struggling, it affects everything about your day. It doesn't matter if it's Father's Day or Mother's Day and they got a big cake and they give you lots of presents. If you feel a tension, a strain, a disunity with one of your own children, you walk around with that. It affects the way that you live. Relatives, in-laws. But I would say this, that usually the, the closer the relationship, the greater the tension. So if it's Diane, that has the greatest capacity to really make my life disrupted. And it's one of my kids. And then I think when you go past that, it's to fellow believers, those we, we love, we care for, we spend time with, we serve God together. And this is what he's talking about here in the church in Philippi. These are companions. We've labored together side by side. And if you remember in, in Philippi, it was not an easy work. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of testings. And so they had shared so much together. And now they have this tension. And he addresses it. For Paul, it's, it's almost as if he's a father. He's a spiritual father in reality to these people. When he says in verse 2, and you can note this, it says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and of one mind. He's, he said, my joy is your friend is never going to be complete until you guys have unity. You ever walk into the room and your kids are fighting? Say, would you just knock it off? Would you, can't you just get along? I think we've either said that or heard that many times in our lives because it's disruptive. But I don't think that this is just a, a selfish uh, request from Paul because he wants you know, it to be calm. He really knows that they'll never really be able to, to accomplish their mission, they'll never really be able to have this unity and oneness unless they come together. So as I said, rarely doctrinal, sometimes moral, but the Word, and we read this in verse 5 when Paul says, let this mind be in you, the, the Word really is attitude. Let this attitude, the way that you think, be the same and be at one. When I think of our future as a church, it is probably the, the easiest way for Satan to disrupt this church. It's not the attacks from without. The same way to disrupt your family, it's not the, the attacks from without. What Satan would do to disrupt your marriage is not the attacks from without. Circumstances even finances, you know, attacks where people accuse you of things, going through a great loss. The outward attacks, what they really do is they serve to strengthen people and strengthen relationships. But when there's a fracture between those two people, that's what really has the capacity to disrupt the church. 
So what does unity look like? And this is what to me is a beautiful picture that the Apostle Paul paints in verse 1 of chapter 2. He starts us off and he says, Therefore, and I think Mike was reading out, you're reading out of the ESV. The, the uh, NIV says, therefore. ESV says, so. And neither one of those words are the words that I feel are the best words. So I'll tell you what I think that is, not in the translations. But he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness of compassion. The word therefore, or so, or it's translated in some uh, translations, sense, is what they call, I know this might really not be too interesting to you, it is a first-class conditional clause. I know you're going to take notes on this. But it means because, because. Because what? Or therefore, or so, or since, because reverts back to chapter 1. So when, when chapter 2 begins, he's saying, because you are a Christian, because you are in Christ, because God has done this transformational work in your life, because you have been in the Word and, and received the Holy Spirit in salvation, there is an effect. There is an effect that takes place. So the evidence, the fruit, all of these things will flow out of a cause, and the cause is Jesus Christ. And so we're not just moving on to the next subject. We're building off the really ground and foundation of Jesus Christ. So the therefore, the sense, the, uh, the so is because of this, now we move on. And he really gives four uh, different dimensions of this. And we're not going to dive into each of these, but let me just give them to the, you quickly. First, he says, because there's encouragement. You have, when you have Christ, you have encouragement of being united together in love. The second one, he says, is because there is comfort of his love, because there is common sharing is the third. And then finally, because there is tenderness and compassion. This is what it looks like, being united together, having something in common of working together. How, how do we become united together? So I thought today... I'm not going to dance today, but I would like, I would like to, to illustrate this, because when he says, the first word he says, come alongside, Brian, would you come on down here? I know you're, you're awake, so I'm, I'll get, if you come down here, I'll pick on you today. When, when he uses the word, if there's any encouragement, or because there is this encouragement, how do we have unity? Now, one way we could think of having unity is I'm going to tell Brian how to think. Um, so I'll just look at Brian. I'll say, okay, Brian, I know you want to succeed in life, and we, we want to have unity. So the way we're going to get unity is you've got to think like I think. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> do we do that a lot of times? I mean, we, we really do this a lot. We feel like we're right. Everybody else is wrong. We're the only ones that are balanced. And the way that Brian and I are going to get along is if he will just get his mind in gear. Yeah, think like I think. Do like I do. And then we will have perfect harmony and unity. Now you laugh, but that's how most of our marriages function. You know, I've got it figured out if you would just get on board with this. So I can look in his face and tell him to get his mind. Or I can come alongside and I can say, I'm going to point the way now. Go, go do that. Or I could say, follow me. 
The, the word that is used here is a word, and, and we, we have different forms of it in English, paraclete, means to come alongside, to come alongside. So I'm not in his face, I'm not behind him, I'm not in front of him. I put my arm around Brian and we walk through life together. And we're looking at the same goal and I understand and I share with him his burdens, his concerns, his heart, his needs as a fellow Christian. I value him. I value him. And sometimes we kneel to pray. Sometimes we stand up. Sometimes we look back. But it's doing life together. Okay? When I'm listening, when I become as good of a listener as I am a talker, which is not easy for me. It's not easy for a lot of us. I bring him along, alongside. You can go back to your seat. Thanks, bud. But, but see, that's how, that's how Christian unity works. Have you ever felt when someone's going through a horrible experience, like, like the loss of a loved one or something that you've never been through, you, you don't go up to them because you don't know what to say. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I'll get a phone call of something that just blows my mind that happened. I think, and I have no clue what to say. I didn't learn it in seminary. Uh, I haven't learned it in books. And I'm driving to someone's home and I have no idea what I'm going to say. And probably the best thing is that I don't say something. But this is coming alongside your arm is around. You get that picture, walking alongside, feeling the pain, feeling the hurt, putting yourself in their shoes, talking through it, asking questions, not just pointing your finger and giving instructions. So now, remember we talked a few weeks ago, it's been a while, about the four words for love. We talked about, do you remember, do you remember that? You may not have remembered that, but we talked about the agape and the phileo and the storge and the eros. The one type of love that is the brotherly love, phileo, which, uh, which we have as a group of people, is not that when I look face to face, I love that other person uh, or I love what they do for me, but that we share a common goal. We share a common love. And what that does, and you can add people to that. Remember we talked about you can add people to or take away from that. But when I, the more I am focused on this and the object that brings unity is Jesus Christ. Uh, that Jesus Christ is the object that will just draw us to this. I've I've likened this to unity. You know, we can we could take a bunch of steel um, steel balls and say we're going to unify all these steel balls and put them in a box, cram them in a box, put put sides on the box, and we have unity. Uh, well, you've controlled their environment, but you could also have a magnet that is drawing those together. And that's much more the picture here that Jesus Christ is what draws us. And, and when He is drawing you and drawing me in a common focus of Himself and through His Word and His love, and we are arm in arm walking together, doing life together, do we have to work through some difficulties? Absolutely. We have to work through difficulties. But we talk them through. It's not me trying to change you, you trying to change me. We're working through those together. So I hope that, that makes a little bit of sense. I love that word because when you, when you have the word come alongside, you're going to find the word paraclete all through the New Testament. And I think what there's a reason for that is because that is the picture of discipleship. That is the picture of teaching. That is the picture that we have of bringing together in, in unity. Now we move to verses 3 and 4. Look what 
what uh, this paves the way. We're, we're coming to Christ together, and what is, what is going to pave the way is a word that we're going to see in just a moment in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So what's the word that we see here? The word is humility. It's humility. Did you know this? The Greeks didn't even have a word for this. That Paul, in essence, makes this up. <laughs> now, you say, why, why didn't the Greeks even have a word for humility? Because it was a disgusting thought. It was counter to their culture. And you know something? It is counter to our culture. Now, we found ways to use it and spin it, what I call false humility. But life without Christ and, and life without God is not going to have any high regard for a word like humility. And none of us are, are, are attracted to that. Now, I'd be attracted to you having humility, but... But when, when you're saying to me or God's saying to me through His Word, Matt, I want you to be a humble person. Well, that's bending the knee. That's being broken. That's, that's, that's like I'm not able to have what I want to have. So there is a natural resistance in our entire culture and in our flesh to this word humility. But humility is the path to unity. Someone once said this to me. They said, humility is the soil in which all of the other graces grow. You can't come to God any other way. You can't grow as a believer. You cannot become mature without humility. Is there any other way to come to God? You say, well, I want to come to God. I want to come to Christ. The only way is to come in humility. And he contrasts this, which is our natural state, of selfish ambition. Now, I want to tell you something about yourself. You are a selfish, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, self-centered person, aren't you? How do I know that? It's not because I've been around you. It's because I know myself. And sometimes you wonder, is there ever a thought or ever a plan that goes through my mind that isn't tainted by my selfishness? Probably not. For me, if I admit it, I'm the center of my universe. And everything affects me. And so my, my tendency is to turn every conversation to me, to talk about me, to know about me, to think about me. That's the way I am. That's the way you are. That's the way you are in your flesh. And so this passage is talking about regarding and valuing others more than you value yourself. And the way that you're going to see that is how, how much you think about them and how much you talk about them and how much you help them. I can tend to wear my feelings on my sleeve, become easily offended. I can't apologize or say I'm sorry. I live in a bubble of this world. So that's one way that I can be self 
absorbed. It's one way I can be what, what he calls here uh, focused on purely on my own ambition, selfish ambition. Now, let me tell you, now I, I struggle with that, okay, being me-centered. But the biggest thing I personally struggle with, and I hate it that I had to preach this sermon this week because it's like I was having this discussion with Diane, and I was really feeling pretty bad about myself. And I, just, I look at the text, and I thought, wouldn't you know it, here we go. I get hammered on again. <laughs> and uh, so I got to share it with you. But I think the biggest thing that I struggle with is getting caught up in a noble cause. And it, it kind of clouds the fact that this is really about me. I get self-deceived with it. It may not be that I'm always, you know, selfish. Oh, I want to do this for me, or I, or I wear my feelings on my sleeve. I don't feel like I do that as much. But what I do is I get really excited and really passionate about certain things. And then I want to pursue those. But it really is more about me than it is about accomplishing that. You say, well, how do you know that? Because bodies fly. <laughs> because I'm going to get there. And uh, it's almost like you're driving to church to go on visitation and you're running people off the road. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell people how to get to heaven. Well, you're probably going to send them. And it's a very difficult thing. So I can have the type of selfish ambition that is me, 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 everything's about me. And little kids are like that. Or I can be about what I want to do. And now if you're wanting to do something evil, that's a no-brainer. But if you're wanting to do something really good, it becomes all about you. And so what Paul is saying, you need to think about others more than you think about yourself. You need to think about others more than you think about yourself. And to do that, you have to learn this concept of humility. You cannot grow without humility. We cannot have a unified church without humility. You cannot have a good marriage. You cannot have a good relationship without humility. And humility is not an easy thing. Next week we're going to look at chapter, chapter 2 verse 5 where Christ not only personally gives us His life example but the teaching on, on what is taking place. So we'll get to that next week. But it's a, it's a tremendous development. We kind of flow from the launching pad of verse 27 in chapter 1 on to this picture of Christ and, and how that's developed, not only, not only showing you the way, but helping you through that way. But I'd like to close with a story. Diane and I got married early on, a good marriage growing, but uh, we had a conflict. And, and to this day, I don't even remember what the conflict was. But I ended up sleeping on the couch in the other room, in the living room. And I know that shocks you. You think, I can't believe. Were you a pastor then? Yes, I was a pastor then. Pastor sleeping on the couch because he can't get along with his wife. Well, the next morning, I had to go to the airport to pick up her father-in-law. He was coming into Denver for a medical convention. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go pick him up. And so I'm, I'm driving out to pick him up. And I didn't even go back into our bedroom to change clothes. I'd slept in my clothes, so I didn't look too hot, didn't comb my hair. So you can imagine unshaved, walking to the airport to pick up her dad. And when I picked up her dad, who's a very godly man uh, and, and minister, he's an elder in the church, um, he is a medical physician, but I said, Dad, I'm so glad you're here. You need to talk to Diane. 
And uh, so he's, in, in, in typical fashion, he says, well, let's go, let's grab some lunch. Let me, tell me about what's going on. So I, I forget what I told him, but I said, no, this, this, and this, and you know, you just need to talk to her because I can't get through to her. And so he asked me a, the question, he said, well, Matt, how much of this is you? So I thought a while and I think, I know, I, you know, I'm, no, I'm not perfect. I, probably there are things I've done. He said, well, give me a percentage. You know, what, what percent are you wrong compared to what Diane's wrong? It's about 5%. Probably. So he said, so, you know, he said back to me, he said, so you're saying about 5% your fault, about 95%. I said, that'd probably be fair, objectively. And, uh, and he said, well, we had a long discussion after that, but, but I, that, that counseling session has forever changed my thinking about how to approach conflict. He said, well, Matt, why don't we take Diane's 95% of the problem? And let's just pray and give that to God. Because you can't change her. In fact, you can't change anyone. And the more you try to change her or try to change other people, the worse you make the situation. And I said, okay. So we prayed. We just committed all this, all of Diane's problems. We committed to God. (laughs) I'm starting to get nervous about this. And he said, now, okay, now that we've done that, let's talk about your five percent. <laughs> and I thought, I really don't want to talk about my five percent. But here's his point. He said, you focus on what you need to do and what you need to be. You focus on being the best husband the world has ever seen. You focus on walking with God. You focus on encouraging her. And don't put your energy on changing her. And you're always going to say, well, yeah, but what about, what about? Because I mean, who's going to? And he said, what will happen is you put yourself in the way of God doing something. In other words, you, you become partners with, in what God is doing in Diane's life as well as what God is doing in others' lives. But when you're constantly trying to fix her or change her or change other people, you always make the problem worse. And I can tell you this, because I still remember that, that counseling. I didn't feel great walking out of there. I felt pretty low. I really felt pretty low. I wish I could say to you, you know what? That counseling session changed my life, Diane, and I have not had a conflict since. <laughs> because I always focus on my, my uh, 5%, 5%. I always focus on that. And I can tell you this, that it has been an ongoing battle for me because my natural tendency is to tell people and fix things and have other people change and not really address what God is doing here. And this is why it's humbling yourself before God, humbling yourself to His Word, humbling yourself as you come to Christ, humbling myself because when I went home, you know what I did? I apologized I said, Diane, I want to ask your forgiveness because I was wrong in the way I was treating you. Now that I've apologized for my 5%, I didn't do that. No, you don't do that. I said, I was wrong. I want you to forgive me. And from this point on, I want to do my best to be the best husband I can possibly be. 
This is the way it works. It's not changing your circumstances. It's not changing the people around you. It's not fixing all those relationships. Because some of them don't get fixed. I used to think, well, I just go over to their house and we'll talk and we'll get it all figured out. Sometimes that doesn't work. But you can be what you ought to be before God. You can be the person He wants you to be. But it takes humility before Him. So, when we leave today, when you face, again this week, you will face tension with people you love and with Christians. The answer is looking to Christ. He is your example of true humility, and He is your helper to get there. So our conclusion, whatever, whatever happens, strive for unity through humility. You got that? Strive through to unity by humility. And you can before God. It is not an easy thing to do. Every day we get to that place. And then God begins to work, not only in our life, but in the lives of others. Let's bow together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we get so frustrated with how we stumble along the way in our relationships. The tensions, the arguments, the hurt, the strain, the tension. And we react in flesh, wanting others to change. And it's really another evidence of our selfish ambition. But Lord, help us to be humble. Like your son, Jesus, was humble and came into this world. And he died on the cross. And he lives for us today to help us. Take our proud hearts and crush them. Help us to be singing with gratitude for what you've done for us. And help us to respond in ways of humility. Lord, I pray for this church, that it might be a unified church. I pray for our marriages represented here, that they might be unified marriages. I pray for our children as we raise them, that they might have homes that are unified. Lord, we know that's what you desire. It's what the world will see is different. Help me, Lord. Help me to humbly be what you've called me to be. As our heads are bowed, I'd like for you to just take a little time to pray and talk to the Lord about the conflicts you've experienced recently. And whether yours is like mine, a 5% or 50 or 95 or whatever it is, you take that responsibility to humble yourself before the Lord and be who you ought to be before Him. Humility is the soil in which all the other graces grow. It is the, it is the pathway to Christ. It is the pathway to unity. And then all those struggles with other people, what they're doing to you, what they're saying, what they're, all of that, you give to God. He can take care of that. And He can take care of it without messing it up more. This message is for you. This is for you. God wants to change you. He wants you to become like His Son. And when you become like His Son, your life will be so full of joy 
and so full of peace because that's what he can do. You take some time and just talk through this to the Lord and we'll look forward next week to picking it up again because to me the theme is a tremendous theme when we see how Christ empowers us to be able to do this. You take some time to pray.